Hey there, welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Our interview guests today are Juan Pablo Angel and Neil Shaw, a former MLS executive who has just written a book about soccer in India. Before we get going, subscribe to my writing site at grantwall.com. I am in Qatar doing daily coverage of World Cup 2022. That's grantwall.com. Let's bring in Chris Whittingham. How are you, my friend? I'm doing all right. I, I have to be honest, every once in a while, I still get thrilled by technology and how <laughs> we can be doing a podcast. It'll sound like we're in the same room together, but you're in Qatar and I'm in Miami and you're near this event. And I imagine if we tried to do this like 12 years ago, we would have been doing this over Skype and it would have sounded like hell. <laughs> and uh, and it, it now it's this wonderful bit of technology where we sound as if we're, we're doing this podcast about the World Cup. It could be done from literally anywhere. Yay, technology. Let's hear it for technology. It's pretty <laughs> impressive. You know, you're right. I mean, I remember the uh, 2010 World Cup 12 years ago, and uh, I was living in a house with Gabriel Marcotti, who had an ISDN line installed at great expense in our South Africa house so that he could have quality aud- you know, audio for his podcasts. And that was sort of earlier days of podcasts, but it was a, a lot of effort and money went into it that we aren't having to go into here. We're just talking on our laptops you are you you travel with a radio studio it's kind of incredible <laughs> so i am on the ground in qatar i got to doha on monday morning um and have hit the ground running just writing columns the last three days here around the u.s team but have you got any questions about what it's like here yeah so you've um you've tweeted about a few run-ins that you've had <laughs> Uh, with, with with the Qataris already, there was a story that went viral today, or I guess a video that went viral on the day that we were recording of a reporter from Denmark who was basically threatened uh, with his camera being smashed if he didn't stop recording, if he stopped, didn't stop doing his live hit that he was doing on Danish TV. Um, so I guess how representative are those incidents of what the actual scene on the ground is like? I mean, that's the big concern right now is that there's going to be flashpoints, incidents between security guards, security forces here and visiting fans or journalists because things can escalate very quickly if it the security seems extremely heavy-handed or over the top. And you mentioned the Danish example. My example yesterday wasn't that big of a deal, but I wrote about it because I still thought it was... Uh, meaningful because I was just in line at the broadcast center getting my accreditation and was waiting and took a picture with my phone of the slogan on the wall, which is this sort of weird English, now is all, which doesn't make a heck of a lot of sense. (laughs) And I was kind of giggling about it. And then the second I took it, this security guard comes over and says to me, uh, no permission, you can't take photos. And I didn't, there were no signs there saying you couldn't take photos. It's the media center. Are you kidding me? (laughs) And so he, I I look at him and then he says like, then he, then he escalated. Then he said, kindly delete it from your phone, sir. And that was like, I was like, what you, you want, you're demanding that I delete this innocuous photograph of a dumb slogan on the wall at the media center. And he kind of looked at me and I was like, and I didn't delete it, by the way. And 
and I, you know, he turned around and walked away eventually. So he did not escalate any further, but it already escalated like far more than it should have for something that small. And it just was a sign to me that of concern because there's going to be more meaningful things happening. There's going to be people here wearing rainbow flags because it's against the law to be gay in Qatar. And the Qatari organizers have said publicly, we're not going to stop you or detain you if you're wearing a rainbow flag. But just because they say it doesn't mean that security guards on the ground won't do that. And that's the huge concern right now is that there are going to be incidents that define this tournament in a negative way, an unwelcoming way for stupid shit. Right? <laughs> yeah. You know, I like, and obviously I don't think wearing a rainbow flag is stupid, but like stuff that should not cause a problem anywhere in the world. It just shouldn't. And so the, the response to, to my situation was interesting. The one to the response to the Danish one was interesting. Um, and, and that's where we are here. But it's of a piece with what I learned reporting here in February on migrant workers, where, okay, the Qatari government changed the laws in 2019 to add greater protection for migrant workers. But it's one thing to change words and laws. It's another thing to actually enforce them on the ground. And I, I found out here when I was talking to workers, they're not being enforced on the ground. That's of, you know, of a piece with all of this. Yeah. And it, it's, it sort of feels like sort of we're going to put out these very public messages, but in our actions behind the scenes, we're going to make it very uncomfortable for you to express the freedoms that you are sort of said to have while you're here. Right, whether it's yeah. press, whether it's rights, and and obviously, you know, the the teams themselves and the organizations themselves put FIFA, put Qatar in a very sort of precarious position by they're being very public about this stuff. And so, if those teams are seen to be undermined in any way as a result of uh, their their the, the government's actions, I I just sort of um you read you read about human rights and you hear about human rights and it sort of sounds one way, but to sort of actually hear people being messed with on the ground because of these very flimsy things is sort of stunning to me. Like even, even as much as you hear and read about them until you actually see, you know, a group of people show up on a golf cart and harass a reporter to go off the air. It's sort of like, Oh, I didn't realize that you just sort of do things. And there's sort of a secret police that just comes up from behind you and stops you from doing what you want to do. Well, and I was telling you before we started recording, we're recording this, uh, it's, after 11 p.m. Qatar time, after 3 p.m. Eastern time on Wednesday, just an hour ago, I was doing a live appearance on a front office sports video and some random dude walks through the front door of the, the townhouse that I'm staying in by myself for a couple more days. And I, I look over during this live video thing and I'm just like looking at who the heck is this guy? And I hate the fact that the most likely scenario is He's just somebody living in one of the townhouses that got the wrong one and walked in. But part of me, because I'm sort of paranoid now, is thinking, this guy's here for me. Or who, fol who followed me here. You know? Yeah. And that's, that's messed up. And now you can't take that out of my head, that that's a possibility here. And I, I'm not naive. I, I always assume when I go to Qatar or Russia or China that I am being watched basically all the time. And I honestly have nothing to hide. The only thing I have to hide is 
identities of like migrant workers I come into contact with here. Mm-hmm. But I'm not doing anything illicit. And so it's just a weird feeling. Especially when this tournament is meant to be this joyous celebration of football. I listened to a great episode of Brian Phillips's podcast that we actually uh, promoted here on Football with Grant Wall, where yeah. you, you spoke to him and the 22 goal series that the Ringer did. And it was a whole hour long piece on the Landon Donovan goal. And he kept the, the, the message of that podcast is the point of this is joy, right? right? And so you sort of put all these football moments. And what this tournament represents to so many people, which is normally during the summer, but a time in which we stop everything that we're doing and the whole globe stops everything that they're doing to watch this thing that brings us joy. And for multiple World Cups now, really since, honestly, well, you can really point back to any point in FIFA history and say that was a point in which they were acting corrupt. But really since the awarding of the Qatar and Russia World Cups, that this organization has sort of ruined the last three World Cups, I'll say, by their business away from the pitch. And it's really tedious. And I know that's a very privileged thing to say. And when the World Cup left Russia, there were issues on the ground that I've only furthered since. And after the World Cup leaves Qatar, there will be issues on the ground that will affect people that live there now. But uh, while we're there, we're sort of left thinking, why Why do these have to be the conditions under which this very joyous thing is played? They don't. You know, and, and I'm also aware, like I, I tweeted the other night, I was like, leaving for Qatar tomorrow, and I hope this is the last World Cup or Olympics in an authoritarian country for a long time. Being fully aware, by the way, that if a certain election result goes away in 2026, that the U.S. will potentially be an authoritarian country in 2026, which I'm, I, I get that. I don't want that. Um, but I do think the response that has, that often comes around these events when you write about human rights or write about what I did yesterday is, um, oh, you know, your country's got problems. What about this? What about, what about ism? I fucking hate what about ism because yeah. in false equivalences and, and like human rights are an issue in Qatar. They're a big issue. And I'm not going to shy away from that. And that Um, doesn't mean that when you're back home, you don't advocate for human rights or things to improve politically here, right? Yeah. There are are also, yes, I can look at my homeland and say, things can improve. Things can improve everywhere. That doesn't mean you can't go to other places and say, things can improve here. I would like things to be improved (laughs) absolutely everywhere. That'd be great. Yeah. I mean, it's a bit of a shame that things have gotten off to that start because like other aspects have gone pretty well here. I'm, I'm thrilled with our living situation. We've got a a four bedroom townhouse. My journalist friends are coming in later this week. Uh, It's the best setup I've had for any World Cup living wise. And it's easy to get around on Uber. I'm in the same bed every night. Unlike most World Cups, um, the work so far has been pretty good. The US team access is very good. I literally went straight from the airport to Greg Berhalter's press conference on Monday. have written every day on the US and and they do provide good access. You know, we've had a lot of players come through already for what we call roundtable sessions where and there's no cameras, it's just writers. And um there's a it's a little bit more relaxed setting where you can get, you know, some decent stuff from today it was Christian Pulisic and Eunice Musa and Matt Turner and Gio Reyna and yesterday we had four other guys and 
So, you know, I, like U.S. soccer is not perfect, but I think compared to other federations at World Cups, they they run a pretty good ship, um, at least in terms of of media access. You know, should we discuss? Should we should we discuss then what you've learned so far while you've been there, and what the mood around the camp is, and how how you're feeling ahead of this? Because I I think well we'll podcast on Sunday night after the Qatar Ecuador match, and we'll sort of get your final thoughts. But what's uh, what's your feeling at the moment? Well, I mean the the U.S. players are saying that it'll feel even more like a World Cup the closer the games get because there was a pretty quick turnaround. They just played club games in some cases on Sunday, got in on Monday a lot of guys and we're doing this on Wednesday. So, you know, the U S guys are in deep preparing for Wales, realizing how important that game is. Uh, a lot of talk about Gareth Bale yesterday, especially from Kellen Acosta, his LAFC teammate. Um, I talked to Tim way as part of it yesterday. And I thought it was interesting because we, you and I have talked about this in our uh, podcast talks of is there an outside chance that Tim Weah gets a shot at being the number nine? And so I asked him, like, did, you know, you trained it all at the center forward spot or just the winger this week? And he kind of paused and was like, I think that's a question for Greg. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don't, don't want to give that one away. So that would be interesting. Um, but th- there's a sense that this U S team is healthier than it's been in two years. And a lot of that's like Gio Reyna's healthy, but it's it's not just him. I mean, Pulisic's healthy and Tim is healthy. And, you know, just about everybody is. You know, McKenny is the, the you know, and, and a little bit De La Torre, I guess. Um, you know, but I do think it's possible that McKenny doesn't start against Wales, that maybe an Aronson or a Gio Reyna might start in that spot. So we'll see. I was actually sent a stat on that note uh, that the MMA midfield, McKenny, Musa, and Adams, Pulisic, and Reyna have never been on the field at the same time in a U.S. shirt. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, you were hoping that that would happen at some point in qualifying. And, and Burhalter said at one point, you know, Bruce Arena, when he talked to me, was like, you will never have your full lineup. You know, just too many injuries, too many things happen. And what's crazy is... Only now that we're at the World Cup, does Greg Berhalter kind of have close to his full complement of players healthy? Yeah, the only one that you'd say right now is missing, especially because Stefan was a, a miss based on form, not based on uh, you know injury, is Miles Robinson. Miles he's Robinson. The only, he, he, yeah. He's the only one that's missing. But yeah, I mean, otherwise you sort of have your full complement of players available to you, and especially for this team, that is so rare. And we'll have so much time to d- to discuss. Uh, the the U.S. side of things, and I feel like I have a pretty good feel for where. I mean, I don't have a good feel because you just don't know what it's going to be like when this team walks out on the World Cup stage. I honestly don't even really know how they're going to approach the game from a tactical standpoint. You don't really know how they're going to approach the World Cup from a tactical standpoint or from a personnel standpoint. So much is going to be learned in that first game. But what the, the thing that I've most gotten a sense of in the U.S. buildup is actually a sense of their opponent in the first game, Wales. Uh, the BBC, you appeared on the Monday Night Club. I, I, told, I texted you that, that I heard that appearance. It was very good. But the BBC, since that, uh, has posted an episode called All About Wales, where they sort of walk the audience through the wait from 1958 
for Wales to get to the World Cup, which is a, an astounding wait for a team to get to a World Cup. Some of the group of players um, that have sort of been there through all of it. And I think one of the things that you hear about is that the U.S. are a good vibes team, but it really seems like Wales are an unbelievable vibes team that they feel this sort of incredible sense of responsibility, of honor to to represent their country at a World Cup for the first time in 64 years and create new memories for their fans, that they got to the Euros for the first time or a major tournament in 2016, and they followed it up with a decent performance in 2010, and that it's not an immensely talented team but it's a team that knows who they are when they play together. They have an, a, a tremendous sense of togetherness. And I feel like that's the thing that most stands out to me heading into this Monday game is I don't think the U.S. are going to be outqualitied, as it were, uh, by Wales. But they could be sort of outfought, outcompeted, outtogethered because the U.S., because of the all these injuries, because of, in, in my view, sometimes a shortage of a clear identity I think Wales knows what theirs is, and that's sort of the sense that I'm getting ahead of this one. I, I don't, I don't know what if you can, from your vantage point, gather a sense that the U.S. can match them on that level. Well, the way you describe Wales out togethering teams is the way you would describe the best U.S. men's teams at World mm-hmm. Cups over the years. And if you, if this U.S. team doesn't have that, that would be a problem. I, I guess we'll see. It would be a real disappointment on the basis of what their, as you said, their identity has been in the past. Yeah, I will say that it's going to be massive tactical differences between the first game against Wales and the second game against England, because against Wales, the U.S. is expecting to possess the ball. They're expecting Wales to sit back. They're expecting Wales to try and counter. And England is basically the opposite. England will dominate possession against the U.S. And I do think over the years, and including this U.S., team, a lot of times they do better when they play against a team like Mexico or like England that's going to outpossess them. And then the U.S. team is the one that counters. And where the U.S. can run into trouble sometimes in CONCACAF and maybe against Wales is just trying to break a low block. And and also, how do you... Japan sort of set a blueprint in that friendly, how do you disrupt the U.S. building out? And do the U.S. actually have any solutions for that? Um, and you're right. I think Wales can be lethal on the counter, obviously, just given the fact that they have Gareth Bale. But also, I think Kiefer Moore is probably a player that we shouldn't underrate, a Premier League yeah. striker who's in form coming into this World Cup, a great uh, attacker in the air and and a big player as well that will certainly be asked to lead the line for them. And so th- they've got some quality in midfield. A big doubt for them is Joe Allen, who's sort of their metronome in midfield is a key player from any distribution that they have standpoint. They do have Aaron Ramsey sort of fit and available. He's been playing in the French league for a couple games for this world cup and getting fit. Um, but yeah, I, I completely agree. How do you use the ball to disorganize the opponent? That's the, that's the clear stated mission of Greg Berhalter. How do you do that? And, and, and it's funny because, you know, we can talk about the U S identity, um, and, and what it should be and what it's been in the past when at times, as you said, they have been a counterattacking team, but, I think part of the reason why there's been a conversation about the U.S. having to remold their identity is this group stage. Even England, as much as they are, they will be expected to possess the ball, it's not really what they want to do. I think they also kind of thrive a little bit on being a counterattacking team. But when they play against bigger teams, they sort of have to. And at times, I mean, they they drew nil-nil away at Iceland before. Like They, they haven't always been perfect under Gareth Southgate when they've been expected to have the ball. And so the U.S. does have to take the game to a team in two of the three games of this group stage. 
And if they haven't evolved enough over the course of qualifying to be able to do that successfully, then that is a real strike against the work of Greg Berhalter over the last three years because they should be able to, against Wales, use the ball to disorganize the opponent and against Iran, use the ball to, to you know, to disorganize the opponent and Iran is very should I try and get should I try and get that that phrasing in like my questions to Greg Berhalter like in every press conference I mean that's that those are his (laughs) words how 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 is this game going to allow you to use the ball to disorganize the opponent yeah that's that that's his that's his mantra that's his phrase and so I'm I'm only repeating what the manager says and I don't know if they're going to be able to do that in two of the three group stage games it's why I'm sort of very hesitant to pick the U.S. to come out of this group and we'll get to our predictions later on uh, in, in the show, but I I am hesitant because I just don't know if the U.S. can do that. Well, if they can't do it against Wales, they don't deserve to get out of the group. Yeah. That's how I feel. You know, and you and, know, and I have a ton of respect for Wales. I've seen them in the Euros. I've seen them in qualifying. I have a ton of respect for Iran, by the way, even though I do think that a lot of the the stuff happening in that country could have a negative impact on their performance for what it's worth during the World Cup. Especially, um, especially if by the time they get to that final day, they're on zero points, having lost to England oh, and Wales. Yeah. Uh, I, I think there's a chance that the U.S. can, you know, get lucky there as it relates, right. you know, what's going on on and off the field. Because that, I mean, that national setup is a disaster at the moment. Yeah, no, most definitely. Um, let's talk about World Cup predictions because uh, I've I've gone through and and looked at mine, made mine. Um, I was thinking we could talk about our predictions for the U S we could talk about our predictions for uh, the winner of the tournament. Um, the surprises, maybe, uh, maybe golden ball. Do you have any others? Yeah. So I, I think we should definitely, uh, start with the U S. Um, and I guess, so we'll courtesy of our friends at, at DraftKings Sportsbook. Um, they, there is all kinds of odds that I think can capture our, our feelings about some of these things. Now let's, let's start here. Um, the with the United States, here are the odds for stage of elimination for the United States. They're actually right now favored, as it were, to go out in the group stage. Now that's they're oh, wow. all they have they have similar odds as Wales. They're minus one thirty five to go out in the group stage, and Wales are minus one forty to go out in the group stage. So they are essentially on the same odds. Iran is like minus three hundred to go out in the group stage. So not not very good odds there, but that's sort of the likeliest scenario. Then out in the round of sixteen is, is two to one. Out in the quarterfinals is seven to one. Out in the semifinals is sixteen to one. And runner up is fifty to one. So those are some very lofty expectations, but they're they're the most likely scenario per these odds is that they're out in the group stage. Is that harsh for you? I don't think it's harsh based on the way they played in September and the way they've played at times. I think on paper the U.S. should advance, but mm-hmm. barely over like a, a Wales. Um, but obviously, you never know, and you don't play the games on paper. I, I am predicting the U.S. to get to the round of 16 and lose to the Netherlands. Yeah, um, that that seems to be the the likeliest outcome for me. Only just, I would say, the second likeliest is that they're out in the group. Um, you you can allow yourself to dream uh, to maybe get a draw off England and you finish the group with seven points and and maybe you somehow sneak a win of the group and maybe your round of 16 matchup gets easier. But to me, you know, unless the Netherlands has a down World Cup. It really feels like unless the U.S. excel and win the group somehow off of England, um, that they're at most four and done. I mean, that, that feels about right. You know, obviously the U.S. won the the World Cup group with England in 2010, and, and that 
presented a real missed opportunity when the U.S. didn't beat Ghana in the round of 16. But if you win the group, then you set yourself up better to potentially make the quarterfinals. Other teams besides the Netherlands in that cross group for the U.S. are Senegal, Qatar, and Ecuador. Um, and, you know, look, if the U.S. goes out in the round of 16, you know, people will be talking about performances, I guess, and evaluating things. I, I feel like if the U.S. doesn't get out of the group, that's a, a definitely a disappointment. If they go out in the round of 16, that's a little bit sort of the expected situation at this point with the U.S. Um do you want to go group by group and and discuss who are two teams to advance, or do you just want to get straight to the uh, who, who's going to win this thing? No, sure, uh, we can. We let, let's let's go group by group. So uh, starting with Group A: Netherlands, Qatar, Senegal, and Ecuador. I've got Netherlands one, Senegal two, and I'm hanging by a thread with Senegal two. Asadio Mane looking to be out at least the first game or two with an injury. Um, and also just my general feeling, as with Russia in 2018, uh, the host country, Qatar, is in this group, and FIFA loves it when the host country advances. I'm not alleging anything shady here, but uh, <laughs> it's. I, I think there's a real chance that Qatar does advance, and that would be likely to mean that Senegal, the African champion, does not. Um, but Mani isn't the only good... Senegalese player. So I'm still going to stick with Senegal um, to get out. I'd like to see an African team do well in this tournament. I agree with you on Qatar, despite the fact that they're actually enormous favor favorites to go out in the group stage. They're minus 800 to go oh. out in the group stage. Um, but I actually think that they're going to go through. I, wow. I think that uh, Qatar, on the basis of they suspended their domestic league two months ago, they've been training together nonstop ever since. They've been building to this moment. I think if they can, and and from what I've seen, they won the Asian Cup. I liked how they performed at the Gold Cup, albeit you know not always against top strength uh, Concacaf sides. I think they have just enough. I'm. It's funny. I'm generally. I'm generally down on South American teams in this tournament, just because I think the level of South American play is down and the only perspective we have is them playing each other. And so I, I, I think that Argentina and Brazil being co-favorites, I think underrates the European teams. I don't think it necessarily yeah. means that, that they're worse than we think. I just think it underrates how much stronger I think Europe is than South American football at the moment. So I think Qatar is going to finish second and I think the Netherlands will win the group. Okay. Um, just real quick, because we already discussed the U.S. group. I've got England 1, USA 2. What do you got? I agree. Uh, group C, Argentina, Mexico, Saudi Arabia, and Poland. Um, I think Argentina is the class of this group. And I do think Mexico is going to find a way to advance, even though they're not playing that great. Uh, Poland just, I don't think has performed that well overall, even despite having Lewandowski. They are so uninspiring at major tournaments. Every time I think they'll they'll do better than they do because they have Lewandowski, um, they they fail to perform. And yet, uh, speaking of uninspiring, I think Mexico is sort of circling the drain at the moment. I just don't <laughs> think. I, I just think that for the whole of qualifying, they never really had that breakout in present performance. You go, wow, Mexico, they can put it together. Uh, even during some of the friendlies, they they had a tuna lead over Colombia in a summer friendly and lost by three goals to two. Uh, they, I just don't think are performing at a very high level. I don't think Tata Martino is sort of really wants to be there very much. I 
think that this is not a, a team that's heading in the right direction. I think for the first time in a long time, I think they're going out in the group stage. I'm picking Poland to finish second and Saudi Arabia to finish bottom. Wow. That is wild. Um, yeah, I by can't the, way, go. The, the odds, the odds back Mexico because they're yeah. minus one twenty, minus one twenty to go out in the group, and Poland is minus one thirty five to go out in the group. So the odds makers think that Poland is just better than Mexico. I've got or, the other way around. Yeah, I've got Argentina one, Mexico two. Um, let's go to the next group, which has the defending world champion France, Denmark, Australia, and Tunisia, or as I'm sure you say, very. British like Tunisia, Tunisia. <laughs> um, but um, this is where the crazy stat comes in, right? That four of the last five men's World Cup champions have gone out in the group stage. The subsequent World Cup, Germany in 2018, finished last in their group. Um, I do not have France advancing. I think they're going to be another really? defending champion in what is honestly kind of an easy group. What most people think. So I've got Denmark one, Australia two, France out. Wow, that's a stunner. I, I wish that they were in a group that offered more of the challenge than I think Tunisia and Australia will. <laughs> I think if they were in the group with Japan, if they're in the group with even Morocco, I would pick them to finish ahead of France. But because they're in this group, D, I, I, I agree with you. I think Didier Deschamps has been in charge of France for far too long. Yeah. Um, that, that, that's, that's one thing that's a concern for me. Um, I think the, the Benzema thing, I know he's played brilliantly and is a Ballon d'Or winner, but that's reintroducing a pretty difficult variable back into a French team that sort of rejected him for a long time. They played pretty well. The issues in midfield, no Conte, no Pogba. They've got to figure out how that midfield uh, works. But I just think they have too much talent to go out to Tunisia, T- Tunisia and Australia. I think Australia are actually finishing bottom of this group. I don't. I don't really think much of the of the Australian national team. I think t- I actually sort of I'm favoring countries that are sort of near Northern Africa or sort of that or, or, or Muslim speaking countries yeah. um, just because I think that is sort of the very limited home field advantage that's to be gained from playing in Qatar. But so I, I have Denmark one, France two, Tunisia three, Australia four. Okay. Uh, next group is an interesting one. You've got Germany, Spain, both have recently won this tournament along with Japan, quality side and Costa Rica, which we are familiar with. I've got the two World Cup champion teams advancing here, Germany one, Spain two. Um, but you could talk me into Japan, potentially. Who knows? Yeah, right. I think if you're if you're trying to figure out the upset, it's which of those two big teams is likely to have a down tournament. I can very easily see uh, a repeat of what happened at Euro 2020 with Spain, where they're a team that has 77% of the ball, but doesn't have the striker to put the goals away. Right. And it can get very frustrating. But I Oh, man, I, I would love for Japan to have been in a different group just because I was so impressed with what they did against the U.S. in September. But I'm going chalk here as well. I One of the things that I think I, I'm underrating when it comes to the Germans, I, I also think they're kind of in a period where I don't know who their stars are at the moment. They sort Jamal of have Luciola, baby. Yeah, I mean, they've got a, a bunch of great young players coming through, and, and and I respect a lot of those players, but I'm waiting to see who that, that breakout sort of talismanic figure is that's going to take over from Klosa, from Muller, from the guys that have led this incredible generation. But I really respect Hansi Flick as a manager. He's probably the manager that's getting the least amount of press ahead of this tournament that I think has such an amazing pedigree. I love the job that he did at Bayern. So I'm picking Germany to finish top of the group, Spain to finish second, Japan third, and Costa Rica fourth. Next group, we've got two semifinalists from the last World Cup, Belgium and Croatia, along with Canada and Morocco. 
these are four good teams. Yes. And again, sort of similar area of the world. It's actually why I'm picking Canada to finish bottom. And I feel really bad about that because I love what they did in qualifying. But uh, I like the I like the World Cup runner-ups uh, to finish top of this group, actually. Belgium are a team where, from a generation standpoint, we're sort of seeing the last fumes of the Belgium golden generation I don't think enough players have really come through and stepped up uh, in sort of the aftermath. Yuri Tielemans and Charles de Quetelaire. Like you see the, the the makings of a team that will eventually replace these Belgium guys. But it's still a lo- lot of Toby Alderweireld and Jan Vertonghen's at the back. Uh, it's still Michi Batshuayi up top. It's still uh, Axel Witzel in midfield. It's a lot of the same players that have been there for a long time. It's probably one ride too many for this Belgium side. So I'm... I'm sort of tempted to pick them to go out of the group, but I'm going to pick them to finish second, Morocco third, and Canada bottom. Interesting. I've actually got Belgium going to the final. Wow. <laughs> Big believer, your boy Roberto Martinez. I am. I am. I'm just wanting to sell books. But uh, <laughs> um, I actually think, and this is this is dependent on Alfonso Davies being available. Hmm. Um I've got Canada getting out, uh, Belgium, really? Canada. I would, I would love for it to happen. I would love for it to happen, but this is a tough group. It is a tough group. I, I think Croatia is what you were saying about Belgium. They're too old. That's you know, fair. Great, great players, um, but I, I think the age will catch up well, with sort of them this their, time. That's sort of their top trait is, is their speed and their youth. Yeah, and we're going to find out how much youth really matters in this group uh, and how much being old does or doesn't. But yeah, uh, that's where I am on that. Next group... Brazil, Serbia, Switzerland, Cameroon. I've got Brazil one and Switzerland two. I think the Swiss are tremendously underrated. And it seems like these teams played each other all, all somewhat recently in the World Cup. Yeah, I think it was at 2014, I want to say that they played each other. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you. Uh, Brazil one, Switzerland two. Serbia have the Mitrovic problem where if he were fit and available, um, you can sort of make an argument for them. Um, but yeah, I, I really like Brazil and Switzerland to top this group. Last group. Portugal, Ghana, Uruguay, and South Korea. Really interesting group. Another one of those teams, like groups of four good teams. I've got Uruguay one, Portugal two. I'm I'm right there with you. However, I want to admit that I'm a coward because <laughs> I want I want to predict Portugal to have a dreadful World Cup. I have them going out in the next round, but I couldn't quite pull the trigger on them going out in the group stage. I, I just didn't know which of Ghana or South Korea would be the more likely to do it. But I am not a believer in Portugal at this World Cup, despite the fact that I love from the goalkeeper all the way to the line behind the striker. <laughs> then you get to the Cristiano Ronaldo problem, and we—I don't think we—we we didn't discuss on Sunday uh, the the issues that are going on there. But I am not a Cristiano Ronaldo believer, and so I am—I'm going to pick them to go out in the round of sixteen. But I think they just squeak by, second in the group behind Uruguay. Yeah, the whole Ronaldo making everything about himself has g- gone to new heights. Hideous, hideous. <laughs> oh my god. So I don't necessarily want to go knockout game by knockout game. Like I. My, my semifinals are Argentina-Brazil and Denmark-Belgium. And uh, I've got Argentina beating Belgium in the final after Argentina beats Brazil in the semifinals. My, my semifinals are Uruguay against England. I have England going through and beating uh, and, and losing in the final to Brazil, uh, who will have lost to the Netherlands. I have the Netherlands getting to the quarterfinals. I have Argentina going out in the round of 16. Despite the oh, fact wow. that they are favorites, I think uh, that France... 
is uh, is going to beat them in the round of 16 because I, I picked them to finish uh, second in that group. So that would be an Argentina-France round of 16 match, and then France will lose to the Netherlands. So uh, Brazil to win it all over England in the final. Interesting. Well, we will see what happens here. We both got South American teams winning the tournament, which, as we said, hasn't happened since 2002. Yeah. <laughs> I think this is a really important World Cup for South America, whether it's Argentina or Brazil in terms of wanting to, needing to close the gap with European teams. I've got, they've got the teams that are capable of doing it. And if they can't, I think people are going to basically say the gap is there and, and there's just the gap. Um, well, the, the, the one thing too, in, in going through it, I think a lot of our lenience was to pick uh, European teams or you know, to a lesser extent, South American teams. So in my round of 16, I think I only have Qatar and the USA as teams outside of Europe or South America that are making it to the round of 16. Are, mm. are we wrong there? Are we wrong to underestimate either the Asian teams, the African teams, or the other CONCACAF teams outside of the US? Are, are, are we placing too much value on the European national teams at the moment? I mean, we could be, but I kind of doubt it. I mean, like as much as I'd like for an African team to go deep in the tournament, Senegal seemed to be the real candidate to do that. And they, that, that injury to Mane is just a killer, I think. Yeah. And I think if you watch AFCON, well, it's, it's fun. It's a fun tournament. I, I, you didn't see the, the quality, you know, beaming through the television screen. There are a few players in each of these teams that are of a good level. Um, I think South Korea is probably one that we probably underrated as well. I think they can probably do better in the group, but I I, I kind of hope that my bracket is wrong because I went very chalky and picked a bunch of European teams. And I hope that that's not what this round of 16 team is. It's basically the Euros with Brazil, Argentina, and Uruguay. Who's your golden boot winner? Mine's Messi. Um, so I guess if I'm going to go Brazil, it's tough. I, I was asking a friend of mine yesterday, what do you think that forward line is going to be? I think Vinny Jr. might not be a terrible shout Okay. Um, if I have England going all the way to the final, then Harry Kane can certainly be up there. He is actually currently the betting favorite, uh, to be the golden boot winner, Harry Kane. So, um, yeah, if, if I'm, if I'm predicting England to go all the way, I'll go for Harry Kane. So for all the listeners out there, we're going to have our usual Monday morning podcast come out and then we're going to come out with a podcast, uh, in reaction to the U S game Monday uh, on Monday. And then we're going to go every other day with the podcast, which matches up also with the U S games. So we're going to get into a bit of routine once the games start here in Qatar. Thank you, Chris. Thanks, Grant. Now here's my interview with Juan Pablo Angel. Our guest now is an old friend. Juan Pablo Angel had a terrific 21-year pro career in his native Colombia, Argentina, England, and the United States. He's co-hosting a new podcast series for LX News and Telemundo called My Favorite Futbolista in English and Mi Mundialista Favorito in Spanish. It has eight episodes with players including DeAndre Yedlin, Juliana Raujo, Ferran Torres, and more. Juan Pablo, it's great to speak to you. Thanks for coming on the show. Grant, it is an absolute pleasure to talk to you, to get to see you again, and to obviously exchange a little bit of what we're doing, you know, as of late. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to this. I, I really like your podcast series. Congratulations. It, it showcases World Cup players and inspiring stories. 
how did you choose the people you wanted to include in these podcast episodes? Right, I wouldn't take any credit for it. I think it was the production team that managed to put, you know, something together that I felt that it was great. Uh, and the reason being is because, as you well know, Grant, there's a lot of, you know, stories out there about, you know, what players do on the field, their uh, abilities, their quality, the way they play and so on and so forth. And and just to, to be able to listen to all of these guys, some of them are rising stars, some of them are a little bit more established, but uh, talking with them about what, what they stand for, uh, what they want to raise raise their voices for and and feel what basically what you know make them passionate of the field i think it was a you know a no-brainer for me and i and when the minute they talked to me about it i wanted to be part of it and fortunately they managed to select me not because of my bilingual because i i couldn't speak a word on it and they were extremely patient with me uh, but here we are uh, and i think the the product is going to be uh, one that everybody's going to enjoy. Yeah, what are some of your favorite stories in the series? A lot of them, uh, and, and, and all, a lot of them are unique as well. Um, and for instance, Cifuentes, uh, I am part of the LAFC team, and, and you get to see the kids and, and, and very shy. And then uh, we, we just found out about the story uh, that he wanted just to, to, to talk off and uh, educating soccer in a way forgotten players those players that try to make it and the majority of them don't do it and and his mother his story is about his mother telling him that he has to that it was must or an obligation for him to to pursue the formal education and he decided just to to play soccer and it worked out for him but the majority of us don't have that luxury and and the luck of you know being able to be professional soccer players so him using that platform to provide these players that don't have the chance to play to have i won't say i, I don't know that this is the correct word to 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 to, to say but something to fall on to uh, yeah. uh when, you know what i mean and uh and, and i think that that's great and then uh, uh Julian Araujo as well, you know, he come from a family of, you know, farm workers. He wanted to have to, to, to obviously make their lives a little bit better to have more equality in terms of, you know, the policies and, and so on and so forth. And a lot of them you can relate to. Uh, so to be honest with you, I think people are going to enjoy it because every story is unique and every every story and the way they tell it, uh, I think is, is, is great. You've been doing media work for a while now. What do you like? about doing media projects like this podcast series or television? I, I do a specific project, project uh, Grant, and, and, and this one was very special. Uh, first of all, because of the people behind it, you don't get to work with NBC very often, and at, at least you don't get to uh, be uh, proposed uh, to be part of a bilingual podcast. Uh, I, I, I I feel that I'm far from bilingual. When I talked to Eric uh, and he was switching back and forth from Spanish to English, I said, hold on a minute, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I, I have nothing to do in here. <laughs> I was so embarrassed. Uh, but then I like to be part of big projects, World Cups, uh, Copa America, big tournaments. Uh, and, and obviously being part of the NBC was something that I was I always wanted to. Um, so when the opportunity came around, I was honored and, and happy to be part of it. But, but having said that, I, I just think that the whole project made sense. Uh, obviously, building up to the World Cup, uh, uh, I think people are going to really, really enjoy it. 
the World Cup is starting on Sunday. What are some of the things you're most excited about seeing in this World Cup? On the field, I really hope that you get to see, we get to see a good quality tournament. And, and it's also unique in terms of the dates that is going to be played. So you will hope Grant, right now that the players are at the peak of their level. Uh, they don't have uh, as many miles as they normally have uh, in the previous World Cups. Uh, so this is exactly in the middle of the season. Uh, I think, as you mentioned, the venues are great. So from the fans that have the luxury of being part of it live or seeing it live, I think is going to be a nice experience. The distance between the stadiums, everything I think is going to be unique. Uh, but then from a personal uh, point of view, uh, and this is just me, uh, I would love to, to see Messi winning it. Uh, and, and this is just, you know, a personal opinion, just for him, just to be able to finally uh, do it at the, you know, biggest stage, uh, I think is going to be great. And and then from this, me obviously being South American, Colombian, um, I've, I think the gap between Europe and the rest of the world is growing rapidly. Uh, and is, you know, they're separating uh, more and more every year. I would love to see you know, the South American team, teams do well, and hopefully Brazil, Argentina, and, and, you know, we'll see. I mean, it's been since 2002 that a South American team won the World Cup. A European team has won every time since. Uh, the four semifinalists four years ago were all from Europe. So I think there's, yeah, I think I'd love to see a South American team win this tournament, whether it's Brazil or Argentina or whomever. Um, I, I want to ask you about the Colombian national team. I was bummed out that Colombia didn't qualify for this World Cup. What do you think needs to happen to get Colombia back to the World Cup? I'm an, I'm an optimistic uh, person, and I always see uh, difficulties being an opportunity. Uh, or, and we certainly didn't do the right things in order for us to qualify. That's what we missed it. And I hope this obviously bring everybody together. Uh, at the board level, you know, everybody that takes part of the national team programs to 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 do the right things in order for for us to to get back into World Cup. Uh, and we just name a new coach, someone that you know was part of probably one of the most successful times of uh, of the history of uh, of the Colombian football or soccer. Uh, he was part of the coaching staff of uh, Beckerman, and. But we certainly have to do something. We have to change things. Uh, the obligation is to do it and to do it well, uh, because if we missed on it, it's because we didn't do uh, the things that we needed it to do in order for us to qualify. We have talent, we have uh, you know quality in, in obviously in our uh, players, but we the competition is getting tougher. Uh, people are getting smarter. Uh, and, and if you don't plan and if you don't have a proper project, I think the chances are becoming extremely difficult for teams to qualify to the World Cup, regardless if they go and increase the, the spots or whatever it is. You have to do it right because people are uh, are doing, uh, in, a, in a lot of uh, you know the federations, they're doing a lot of the right things and it's getting tougher and tougher. You're obviously doing media work these days. Are you doing any coaching work or want to do any coaching? I did, Grant, and I, I and I had it on the back of my head. I wanted to be a coach. I wanted to explore that. And then the pandemic came and I, I just switched off. I, I'm more concentrating on other things. I do media work. I'm doing more of the, the business part of the, of the industry. 
and and this is what I'm concentrating right. I don't know if in the future I might change my mind, but right now the coaching part is off. I follow you on Instagram, so I can tell you're in amazing physical shape still. Do you still play at all? I, I don't play much, Brent. I, I I mean, very rarely I get to play with friends, but I, I, I'm I not. I, I always... You know, when I play, I said, I want to play, you know, as long as I can and I, you know, do the best I can. So when I finish, I don't regret and I don't, you know, spend, you know, every other weekend playing with friends, trying to do the things that I didn't do while I was playing. (laughs) (laughs) Just just to wrap up, I mean, you had such a successful career in so many different countries. I, I, as a person who lives in New York, will always view you as a New York Red Bulls player. What are your thoughts on the Red Bulls these days? I mean, New York is a special for me, Grant. You know that. I mean, I they the way they treated me it was one of the best times of my career, uh, and it will always hold a, a special you know place in my heart. I just think that you know uh, every and I get the multi um, property uh, ownership uh, that you have to have the same kind of system for everybody, but every market is different every culture is different and you have to embrace the culture of the places that you go to uh, and as much as i like some of the things that they're doing i found there, there are certain other things that you know the club has to do better understanding you know what the market requires uh, and and you people want to see a successful people want to see a successful team but also they want to see a good spectacle every weekend and especially in a major market like new york we need more juan pablo angels with the red bulls <laughs> that's my opinion my friend but um, i mean i when i went to new york i i, I and this is just i don't know but I, I i felt that i needed to do a bit more in terms of embracing you know my status when i joined the club and uh, just to 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 do a lot more uh, than I needed to perform well on the field for sure, because that was my duty. But I needed to be uh, to do a little bit more to embrace, you know, what uh, the New York brand and the New York market was about, you know, and that was, you know, discipline, uh, responsibility, respect for the badge and and the people and supporters and so on and so on and so forth. And I and I and I do believe that people appreciate uh, the, the the few years that I spent in the club. Juan Pablo Angel is co-hosting a new podcast series for LX News and Telemundo called <laughs> My Favorite Futbolista in English and Mi Mundialista Favorito in Spanish. Juan Pablo, great to speak to you. Thanks so much. Ram, thank you. And an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Now, here's my interview with Neil Shaw. It's time for another segment of Book Talk. And our guest is Neil Shaw. He's a former director of fan development for Major League Soccer, whose terrific new book is Awakening the Blue Tigers, India's Quest for Football's Holy Grail, co-written with Gaurav Gala with a foreword by Ferran Soriano, the CEO of Manchester City and NYCFC. Neil's been living in India since 2009. Neil, congratulations on your book and thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Grant, for having me. I appreciate it. Lots to talk about here, but before we get to your work in India, I want to get into your background in the U.S. and then MLS. What is that background? Yeah, so like many others, uh, I grew up playing soccer in the 80s. I grew up in Southern California. I'm of Indian origin, but uh, born and raised in California and went through the whole club system, U.S. Youth Soccer, you know, ODP, 
um, and hit that stage where I realized not going to be a professional. Uh, it was 1996 or so, and this happened to be the same year MLS started. So I thought if I'm going to let soccer be a part of my life or make soccer a part of my life, even into my non-playing days, what better place to be than uh, MLS? So for the next six years, put a lot of effort into uh, getting that, getting prepared for that interview, which happened in uh, New York City in 2002 and got the job and, you know, got to be part of MLS's, let's say, the early years of its its growth phase, um, where we got to see the expansion that was happening in the early days with like a Real Salt Lake or Chivas USA. Got to go through the ups and downs of a uh, of of some of the the um, the challenges that MLS faced in its early seasons of building relevance in local markets, and um, and also got to see a lot of the the, the fruits of the 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 planning that um, the early architects of MLS put in place, and I got to experience a lot of that, and also the the, the David Beckham impact and everything else. So it was just such a cool time to be part of the league at that time because I got to experience it firsthand with a small group of us as well, which really got to wear multiple hats at that time. What does a director of fan development for MLS do? I imagine in 2022, many different different than what uh, a guy in 2002, 2003 was doing. Our early days, I was working with um, David Wright, who's you know a senior position at US Soccer now. Um, him and I were basically looking at, you know, we broke up the... Um, the, the potential fan community into three different buckets. One would have, was the youth soccer community. One was the 18 to, to, to 24s who are passionate about soccer, mostly European soccer, but had an opportunity to become fans of MLS. And then the Latin American community as well. So since we had limited budgets, we were really spending time taking money from partners like at the time Sierra Mist or Panasonic and Radio Shack and building programs like Footballito or, you know, the dribble yeah. pass and score. We created a pubs network with Budweiser. And um, and then we started, you know, working with the universities, the soccer coaches at universities to get more kids interested into soccer in those summer camps that they run. So those early days was all about leveraging partner resources to go out and build more fans as the years went by, our budgets got bigger. So I had more money to go out and work with local clubs to incentivize them to build relationships with their community that had nothing to do with ticket sales, but had to do with meaningful emotional connect and, and meaningful dialogue with the uh, the club. So I found that to be a lot more engaging just because it was a lot less uh, partner focused and a lot more relationship focused. And, and it evolved over the years of working with supporters groups and so on. But ultimately, it was about building programs and partnerships to bring the extended soccer community into MLS's fold. And in 2009, you did something fascinating. You moved full time to India. What led to that? Why did you want to do it? Yeah, it seemed like a very odd decision. Now, 13 years later, still seems odd, actually, but uh, it, was, it was a fantastic decision. I feel like the best one of my life. Um, I had never been to India in 2007. And I, you know, I remember just seeing Sunil Gulati around and just just peppering him with questions about India and, I, you know, telling him, I feel like I, I want to do something there. I just don't know what. And I had never even been to India and I was as... He, he kind of had no plan. I was just a young kid, very excited and just rambling. And um, so finally in 2007, I just got a ticket backpacked around during my my winter break. And because of the relationships that I had in, in the soccer industry, I was able to meet with the Federation, people at Nike and Adidas and others while still backpacking, going to my family villages and, and so on. 
And I left the country at that time feeling like there's something really special in this country, not just you know, from a soccer perspective, but from a personal growth and development perspective. So 2008, same thing, went back with 300 soccer balls. I, uh, a friend was writing a book for ESPN about the power of sport. And he said, can you just donate these around the country and see, um, you know, record the impact on you and the people you're connecting with. And I, I did. And I realized that on that trip, there was so much power and passion for, for, for passion for football at the grassroots level. When I was giving a ball to a child in Tamil Nadu, they would get as excited as if I was giving it to somebody in Buenos Aires. It was it was all there. And I also went to a, a Federation Cup final, Mohan Begun versus Dempo in Salt Lake Stadium. It's in um, Kolkata. 80,000 people were there. And it was as vibrant as I would have seen in so many parts of the world. So I thought, you know, at the top, there's potential. I'm seeing it and I'm feeling potential at the bottom. It was the the it was the the dialogue between the top and the bottom in the sustainability in the ecosystem's kind of ability to thrive and sustain itself that was missing. And I felt like in the US, I had experienced so much of that. And I thought uh, I'm uniquely positioned to move to this country and try my best to bring a little bit of what I've learned over to India, but also to learn and grow in the process. I thought it'd be a couple of years and I just was captivated by the warmth and potential and just adventure in this country. And I just stayed. I mean, it's an amazing story and you're right. You are uniquely situated, I think, as someone who's been so involved in the development of soccer in the United States and then going to India. How do you think they compare the U.S. and India in soccer. How do they contrast as developing, still developing soccer countries? Yeah, you know, I think about this often and it's something that, you know, on, on the at the forefront, I'd say that, you know, given my experience in soccer in America, where I was there in the U.S. in 94 World Cup came, I was there, I was at the in the stadium when U.S. beat China in the 1999 World Cup with the historic win and Brandy Chastain's iconic moment. And I was there, you know, of course, watching when we beat, uh, when we made it to the quarterfinals of the 2002 World Cup and watched the growth of MLS. But I was also there at times where people said soccer is never going to grow. It's never going to make it. You know, watching, you know, the Metro Stars play inside of, um, you know, Giant Stadium with, um, you know, American football or soccer or NFL lines. And you'd have just my friends going, Neil, you're director of fan development and, you know, going, <laughs> what are you doing all day at work? And I'm like, oh my God, I'm embarrassed here. So it was in, in, in those days going, how are we going to do this? Are we really going to be a league that we're all proud to be a part of? And seeing what's happening, I mean, this recent MLS Cup is a perfect example of where the league is at. So in India, it's no different. It's a cricket country by all you know, purposes, people, it's in the blood, it's in the religion. But I understand that it takes growth and development, it takes time. And because I saw the US growth and development, where it's almost gone from a place where nobody really thinks it's going to make it, and it's gone to what it is today, I felt like India has can do it even faster. Because when a country of 1.4 billion really gets excited about something, miracles can happen. And we've seen this in other sectors like the IT industry and Bollywood and so on. So I'd say on one hand, these are two countries where soccer is not the number one sport and the stakeholders have to get together to really work hard to, you know, make it relevant in the country. Two is that um, the 
grass the passion for the sport existed in the country even when mls wasn't the most popular for soccer fans there were still some pockets of passion for european soccer in india i find that kids in mumbai or bangalore chennai or delhi know as much about european soccer as they would as people in europe and i find the passion as palpable as as i would when i'm sitting in manchester or london as uh, for their local clubs so that's there the biggest difference honestly grant is in the US the the structure is so much more set um whether it's US youth soccer and AYSO and US club soccer and the university system and even when MLS came in it was a long-term plan that most stakeholders were behind in India it's such a large country that it's 36 state associations and i said 1.4 billion people with a lot of challenges beyond sports development that exist in the country so when you have that people it's very difficult to centralize a leadership and so you have to go down to the state associations and they're not well funded not very professional so when the states are are weak it's very difficult to see the pathway and the kind of the the growth of the game in in a way that's really meaningful and and we really need to empower the states but because of cricket's rise and the indian premier league which has become one of the most profitable leagues in the world most indian investors into who invest in soccer want to see the cricket um success overnight and because of the people in mls who invested early like Lamar Hunt and Philip Anschutz and Robert Kraft they understood that these things take time and so they are willing to get behind the long term plan but in India i've seen that that patience is not there and so because the patience is not there you see a lot of money invested and a lot of people pulling out which is actually hurting the system more than helping and that's been one of my biggest uh, messages to people here since i've been here just pound beating beating the the boxer you know standing on my soapbox telling as many people as can long term growth and sustainability is our is our goal here and everything we do we should focus on sustainability and impact first and the rest will come and i can say that because of my mls and us soccer experience but unfortunately not a lot of people were blessed with that opportunity to kind of grow up in the way that i did and in addition to writing your book what are you doing professionally over there yeah so over the last um, 13 years of being here most of my time was in the the soccer industry um for a long time I was with a company called Libero Sports uh, it was a soccer consulting company with investors from the US where we would actually help um set up the businesses and and market entry strategies for international clubs like Barcelona and Liverpool and and even Bayern Munich it helped them really start to maximize the opportunity here in India because there were so many fans of their clubs in the country but they weren't able to really understand how to actually connect with them in a in a way that was that was workable and uh, long lasting so i was doing that and working with a lot of indian soccer stakeholders then i became a ceo of a professional team which is kind of a dream to run a club so it was in pune it was in the i league uh, our professional league and i also ran the liverpool academy as part of that project but one of the things i noticed was that what was missing in india was not necessarily more money with indian sports it was missing was professionals and my time at mls taught me that that if you have professional people in the right positions in a sports industry you will see growth at a much greater pace and when you have people who don't have that acumen they could have passion but they don't have business acumen it's harder to see that growth so what which we decided to do myself and an investor is set up India's first industry design sports management 
postgrad program, basically a master's program. So we set it up in 2018. It's called Global Institute of Sports Business. Um, it's incredible because we have about 30 students a year who go through this 15 month rigorous course. University of Massachusetts Amherst, which is the number one program in the world, sends over their faculty. They teach here. We have a great working relationship with them and our partners, the Premier League. So they give our students a lot of consultancy projects, not for them, but just for also their clubs as well. So they're constantly looking at how Chelsea or Arsenal or others can build their brand and business in India. And our students go to England and get to see what it's like to work in the Premier League and Premier League clubs as well. And at the end of this journey, they end up getting jobs somewhere in the industry. So I, I am the associate dean of that program. And then on the side, I head up business for the parent company, India Track, and our clients are Premier League and La Liga and even Major League Baseball as we help build the culture of baseball for MLB in this country. We do a lot of that kind of work as well. No, that's fascinating. Wearing a lot of hats and, and doing a lot of different work. It's very interesting. Um, I do want to ask about the history a little bit. Um, what happened with India and the 1950 World Cup and, and what was the impact of that, in your opinion? Yeah. And so if you, you know, it's, I'm sure you know your history as well. You know, 1947, India became a country, um, you know, was able to break off from being run by the British and uh, had their own democracy and democratic state, basically. And few, and even by 1948, India had started traveling around Europe to play a bunch of football or soccer games. And, um, you know, it was in the 1948 Olympics in London and had a in thrilling 2-1 loss to France. And, you know, a lot of um, people started to notice the Indian national soccer team and traveled around Europe to play a bunch of friendlies, even beat Ajax 5-1 in a, in a friendly match. So the Brazil, so the people organizers, the World Cup organizers wanted to bring in what they called the country of Gandhi to India, or sorry, to Brazil to play in the World Cup. And they invited them, a couple of other teams in Asia dropped out. So they had this direct entry to go over to Brazil and, and compete. And what was interesting is that in 1950, you know, a lot of the the press that was happening in England, it was filtering into India because there was still that hangover. And in 1950, the World Cup wasn't the primary, um, you know, soccer tournament that in, in the world for the British in their their minds, their perception. So Indians also felt the same way. So right off the bat, they weren't really overly kicked about it. Two is that the Olympics was very important. So they were focused on that. Three is that the Asian Games was going to be hosted in Delhi in 1951. And India really wanted to get gold in that tournament. So they would rather, rather than sending a team all the way to South America, it was quite a haul. They decided to say, you know what? We don't want to do this right now. We'll, 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 we'll thankfully and respectfully decline your invitation to the FIFA World Cup so we can focus on the Asian Games in, in Delhi, which they won gold. And they'll focus on the 1952 Helsinki Olympics, which they got fourth place in. So the All India Football Federation, in a way, was right. But they didn't realize that by saying no to FIFA in the 1950 World Cup, led to many decades of not even getting to qualify for other World Cups, which really set the country back. It's really good, I think, to establish that there is a history of soccer in India and even success. And I, I sometimes remind people about that in the United States as well. And there are some similarities in that that whole 40 year period when the U.S. men didn't qualify for the World Cup from 1950 to 1990. 
Um, part of the, that time was because U.S. soccer was prioritizing the Olympics and the U.S. actually qualified for the Olympics. It's, it's so hard to imagine now because we think of Olympic men's soccer as something um, quite a bit smaller than the World Cup. Um, mm -hmm. In terms of India and qualifying for the men's World Cup, like, when do you think that could happen? How close is India? You know, we get this question. One of the reasons we wrote the book is because this comes up in every single pub, you know, banter session to every co soccer conference I've ever been to, to every, you know, even my in-laws who are in Delhi, you know, every time I'm at a family gathering, you know, they ask me this question. And so I wrote the book as an answer to that question, which is basically, <laughs> I'm not 100% sure. I can't tell you what the year will be. I can tell you what we need to do to get there. But to be honest, uh, you know, to to try to be bring a little bit more kind of detail to that we have you know the 48 world cup uh 48 teams in the 2026 world cup is we don't know how many spots that actually means for asia but i do feel like that um is going to be of course a, a help for um india to, to get one of those spots the other part of it is that you know we are actually really far away though um in terms of our 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 our, our systems our academies are pretty far behind the other asian countries and they seem to be getting stronger and stronger whereas ours are taking time our professional landscape league landscape is quite still finding its feet there's two leagues that are looking at figuring out a way to kind of combine and our our grassroots and youth league system is pretty pretty far away too so I would love to kind of throw out a number 2034 and say, yeah, that's going to happen. But a lot of different things need to happen to make that happen. Now, the funny thing is, though, is that not the funny, the 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 exciting thing I would actually say is that we believe the women will make it to the world, the senior World Cup before the men do. The women's game is more neglected in India than the men's, unfortunately. But the competitive landscape in Asia for women's soccer is at the national level is not as strong it is, it is for the men so for the indian national men's team to make it as one of the top four or five or six in asia it's quite a journey especially you throw in the middle east teams as well in australia but you try to talk about the women's team they continually win saf which is a south asian football federation and they can be competitive with some of the team with many of the competitive teams in asia maybe not in japan right now but they can go up against you know others and and still hold their own and i do feel like there will be ways for the women's team to qualify before the men which you know what you know our women's world cup team won in 99 in the us and you saw the you know what that did just for the perception of soccer in america and i wouldn't be at all you know i would be more than excited for the women to make it before the men not just for soccer but for women's empowerment and respect in this country which is something that so many young women face as a part of just being you know the sometimes considered the wrong sex over here which is not true at all of course yeah i was going to ask you about that as well with with women's soccer over there just access wise What's that like? And, and is that growing just the ability for women to play the sport? Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty um, dire at the lower levels, really. I mean, you see a couple, there's, of course, school teams. They would be some youth programs here and there. But what you where you're seeing the most movement is a new league. They started a couple of years ago, um, the federation called the IWL, the Indian Women's League. And um it's like more of a short form league that they're looking to extend over time so at least it's giving these women football soccer players an opportunity to um you know play in a competitive tournament at a national level 
That being said, it, the the pay is not enough to make this a full-time career at this point. So it's pretty difficult to kind of keep managing this for a lot of these, these, these women. Where we've seen the most impact actually, which is also what we talk about in the book is there's individuals who've gone to different parts of India and set up these uh, programs like nonprofit programs that are, I feel like having transformational impact on those communities. Uh, uh, there's a guy, an American guy from Minnesota, a hockey player named Franz Gassler. He showed up in a village called Hutta Village, fell in love with that village and created a girl soccer program that a lot of uh, his friends started funding. That I, I've been to that village many times. He started in 2009. Those girls in Jharkhand have been able to, many of them go to Dynasty Cup in Spain, go to the America's Cup in Minnesota. They've gone out to DC. They've won the Laureus Sports Award, got a you know award from Arsene Wenger. There's many of these around the country. And I spent a lot of my time in India traveling around and visiting them to understand them better. So what I've been sharing with people who want to see women's soccer grow is not just wait for the Federation to do it. It might take a long time. But let's start empowering these really, like I call them, like you know, heroes in the in the in the sticks who are working day and night for the betterment of women's soccer from the ground up. And in the meantime, the academies and the the league structure will get there. FIFA, AFC is all trying to help us out. But let's really get those people the kind of um, you know support that they deserve and need to to do more with what their uh, the, the energy and passion they have for this space. Yeah, there's a good chapter on the women's game in your book. Um, I, I did want to ask about China and India and soccer mm-hmm. development because I did a story when I went to China right before the 2002 Men's World Cup when Bora Milutinovic had gotten them to their World Cup, their first one on the men's side. They have not gotten back China since then. And you know, I, I do think people, when they think about the two biggest countries in the world population-wise, India and China, and there's a feeling that in men's soccer, at least, China has made some real missteps over the last 20 years. And I guess my question would be, one, is there a sort of rivalry between the two countries as they mm-hmm. develop soccer-wise? And are there any lessons to be drawn from what's happened in China in men's soccer over the last two decades? Yeah, I mean, from a rivalries perspective, unfortunately, not yet. We're just not, it's, we haven't played enough matches against them. We've not um, kind of had any way to build that rivalry on the soccer side, on the political side, 100%. And there's a lot of, in the military side, there's a lot of challenges with China. We, we share borders, uh, certain borders with them. Um, now, from my experience, I haven't studied Chinese soccer as kind of in-depthly as I understand Indian soccer, but what it, I've understood is that, you know, when the president of China many years ago said he wanted 50,000, I believe, turf uh, soccer fields in the country by a particular year. I happened to be in China speaking at a conference at that time, around that time. And I started noticing a lot of people are moving to kind of make that happen. And what I noticed in India, when the prime minister says anything of even close to that, or let's support soccer, you know, U17 World Cup is here, let's do something. To, to go from the top in Delhi to all these 36 state associations and to mobilize funds in a way that's kind of making sure it's getting to the right places and people are moving in the right ways is, is far slower and more challenging in India than a communist country like China. So you'll, from a, a growth and development perspective, I imagine China would see a lot more, um, success in, in, in the pace and velocity of their, their, their investments going to the right places because of how the country is structured. The learning, though, is what they did with the Chinese Super League. 
and the the transfer fees that started coming in, the kind of money that was being just spent, the kind of way that they were running, they all of a sudden tried to kind of bypass the real sustainability and structuring and kind of establishing a good foundation, a healthy foundation for that league before jumping, you know, to be try to compete with the likes of the Premier League. And that's when the government stepped in and started putting all these penalties and fines and really, really trying to slow that down. And in that process, a lot of money would be leaked out to agents, to players, to whatever, to translators. And I feel like it would have impacted Chinese soccer by a lot because it would have been difficult for those core national team players to get the kind of, you know, environment that they would help them thrive, I feel. In India, we tried to do something kind of similar with the Indian Super League. While we weren't bringing in Oscar and others, we were bringing in Del Piero and Pires and you know, Zico as coach, as a coach, um, you know, Marco Mastrini as a coach and Roberto Carlos and so on. And while it brought a lot of excitement and attention to the league for a couple of years, it, it, it also wasn't very sustainable because, you know, the players were at their tail end of their careers. You're spending millions of dollars on them to not just pay them, but their translators, their wives, their girlfriends, the five-star hotels. And it's a two and a half, three month league and a lot of money just going and they, they don't come back the next year. So, and they're not necessarily making the Indian players better. So, I mean, I'm, I really, really speak about this a lot. The, I fail and I'm biased, but the MLS model is in, incredibly intelligent in terms of bringing in the marquee players at a time when we had proper soccer specific stadiums at a time where we had decent homegrown players that could play around a David Beckham or Thierry Henry, you know, and, and at a time where just the officials running the club in the league understood the game a, a lot more than, than maybe they would have in 2001 or 1999 when everything was brand new to everyone. So I think Chinese Super League, but definitely ISL, tried to do a lot really fast. And some of it worked, but a lot of it kind of leaked a lot of money that could have gone back into the development of the game. Just to wrap up, I guess I would ask about what you view as your personal future. I mean, you're, uh, you you visited India for the first time in uh, just in the 2000s, and, and then in the last 13 years, you lived in India full-time. Do, do you see yourself staying in India full-time long-term, or do you plan on coming back to the U.S. at some point? Yeah, I just realized that you've been to India before I was first ever in India. I think you were saying you were, you were here in 2006, which is unbelievable, but uh, which, <laughs> um, you know, I, I feel very blessed on it and, and and anybody who knows me and spends a lot of time with me would kind of get that when I, I speak because i have this beautiful opportunity to connect the east and the west through sports and education and a lot of the work i've done since i got to india was to to try to connect europe and eventually you know try to even uh, us based sports companies and over and tell the, the india story to them and bring them back over here in a way that they can kind of impact this country and also get rewards as well and now i'm doing it through education giving my students global best practices here in india but also helping you know you um students in the us understand in, in the uk and australia the indian sports landscape because there's a lot of opportunities here uh, a couple of six six and a half years ago i got married to a girl here in india uh Bhartika, who, who i thank you and i also went from being a, a nomad who had no family in this country to now a person who has a huge set of in-laws and extended family in Delhi. So India feels like home. I do get to spend a lot of time in Europe and America, you know, 
visiting family and connect, teaching and connecting with the, the sports communities there. So for now, I mean, my parents will not love to hear this because they're sitting in California, but I see India as a long-term, a longer-term home, but a lot of trips and time spent, especially in the U.S. and, and a bit in England to uh, keep pounding the pavement that people should be investing and in thinking about connecting with India across all industries because it's such a beautiful vibrant and high potential country. Neil Shah's new book is Awakening the Blue Tigers, India's Quest for Football's Holy Grail, co-written with Gaurav Gala. Neil, congratulations. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Grant. And keep up the great work. I love everything you're doing. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Juan Pablo Angel and Neil Shaw, as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time.